So John chapter 1, starting at verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw John coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. One of my favorite television shows is Seinfeld. And the reason I like Seinfeld in part is because it's a show about nothing, but it's also a show about everything. There's no superheroes. There's no alien invasion. There's no big national tragedy that the main characters are trying to overcome. Everything in the, in the show is about things that happen in everyday life. Or things that maybe we observe happening, but then they take it to kind of an extreme. And, and to me, it's humorous because they take it to such an extreme, but I've seen kind of those individual elements played out, maybe just on, not on a greater scale. So there's one episode, it's called The Big Salad. And in this episode called The Big Salad, George and his girlfriend, Julie, are going to the coffee shop and they invite Elaine, uh, their friend, to, to join them to the coffee shop. And she says she can't go to the coffee shop, but she says, can you bring me something? They say, well, what do you want us to bring you? And she says, the big salad. And George is like, you know, he really pokes fun at her. He says, well, am I supposed to just say, I want the big salad? I've never heard of a big salad before. What comes in a big salad? And so after, you know, messing with her for a little bit, he says, okay, we'll get you that big salad. So they go to the coffee shop, and they get the salad. George pays for the meal, and then his girlfriend, Julie, takes the bag and carries it. Then they go and see Elaine, and his girlfriend hands her the big salad. Makes sense, right? Just, you know, normal, everyday thing. But this throws George into a rage because he paid for the big salad, but his girlfriend got credit for the big salad. And then he subsequently has a conversation with Jerry that goes something like this. He said, did you see what just happened? Did you happen to notice that Julie hand, handed the big salad to Elaine? Well, she didn't buy the big salad. I bought the big salad. She just took credit for my salad. That's not right. I mean, I'm the one who bought it. You think she would have said something. He says, you know, you buy a big salad for somebody. It would be nice if they knew it. 
Then after this, George just can't get over this, so he had this, has this really awkward conversation with Elaine where he's like, I just wanted you to know that even though Julie handed you the salad, I actually paid for the salad. And it gets super awkward. You know, but you think about that, and of course it's a silly, crazy kind of story, but I think that we all have that tendency to want to take credit or to be recognized for the things that we do. And it's not wrong to want credit or want to be recognized for the things that we do. Nobody wants to be underappreciated. Nobody wants to be rejected. But I think the problem comes when we take that desire and make it an idol. When we take that desire and that's kind of the thing that drives all of our behavior. There's an old story about a turtle who wanted to spend the winter in Florida, and he knew that he couldn't walk all the way to Florida, and so he had this idea. He found these two geese who were headed to Florida, and he had them put a rope in between uh, their two beaks, and then with his vice-like uh, mouth, he, he latched onto the middle of the rope. The geese started flying, and they were flying towards Florida, and then somebody looked up and saw this turtle traveling with the geese, and they thought, wow, what a great idea. I wonder who thought of that idea. The turtle couldn't contain himself, and he opened his mouth and said, I did. I think we all have this tendency to want to receive credit or to be recognized. You know, maybe we think to ourselves, well, I've seen people like that. I've seen obnoxious people who are attention-seeking, and it's all about them, but it's not me. But I would argue that all of us fall into this trap. We see back in Genesis, back in Genesis chapter 11, remember the story of the Tower of Babel. The people want to build a tower to the heavens. Why do they do that? They want to make a name for themselves. They turn their worship from worshiping God who is above to trying to reach God. It's a, it's a shift from trying to worship God to worshiping self. How can this play out in everyday life? What does this look like? If someone says something negative about you, how do you respond? Of course, it's natural to be sad if someone says something negative about us. It's natural to be hurt. But are we crushed by other people's words? Do we feel like there's no hope if somebody says something ill of us? If we're crushed by that, if we're driven to despair by other people's words, it fundamentally tells us that what's important in our life is what other people think about us. That I need to be recognized or receive credit for being a person who's worthy. A.W. Tozer called this self-love. He said in his book, The Pursuit of God, the labor of self-love is a heavy one indeed. He says, think for yourself whether much of your sorrow has not arisen from someone speaking slightingly of you. He says, as long as you set yourself up as a little god to which you must be loyal, there will be those who will delight to offer an affront to your idol. How then can you hope to have inward peace? The heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight, to shield its touchy honor from the bad opinion of friend and enemy will never let the mind have rest. We see this play out in relationships all the time. You know, a couple will have a conflict and they'll go to the counselor and say, the problem is my spouse. If my spouse didn't do this or this or this, we wouldn't have this issue. And really, when we're saying that, it's like, if only my spouse would recognize who I am. If only my spouse would recognize that I'm not the problem. 
The Pharisees and religious leaders in the New Testament did this with spiritual practices. It says in the Gospels that they did this when they would give. When they give to the poor, what they would do is they'd make this big show of it. Don't know exactly what they would do. They would probably, you know, put this big sack of coins on their back and, and, you know, and kind of wobble in and then go to the coffers and then maybe take out each coin individually and throw them there so that everyone could see how much money that they were giving. They do it with prayer. They would go on the street corners and, and offer up these lofty titles for God and pray for, you know, maybe hours to show people how spiritual they were. They would do it with fasting. They would be fasting, and rather than just kind of going about their daily life, they would put, you know, sackcloth and ashes on. They'd put ashes on, and they'd, you know, walk around with this glum face. And then, you know, people ask, oh, so what, what's your deal? And they'd be like, well, I'm fasting for the Lord. And, and they'd use these spiritual practices not to draw closer to the Lord, but so that they would receive glory from other people. We can do the same thing with spiritual things. Another way this plays out is someone maybe asks you to do a favor, or if you do a favor for someone, and then maybe they don't display the gratitude that you thought that they should, or maybe they don't reciprocate as you thought that they should. They don't appreciate you. They don't recognize you for what you've done. Another symptom of this is, you know, when you dominate a conversation. You know, there's some people who, you know, maybe you talk to them and it's all about them. Every time, you, you, you know, you talk to them, there's nothing about you or your life. It's just talking about them and their issues. And really, that's a desire to be validated, a desire to be appreciated. Now, I don't say that to make anyone feel bad. I, I think all of us have this to a certain extent, and I'll put myself at the front of the line. This is something all of us struggle with. This desire that I need to receive credit, I need to receive uh, recognition for what I've done. And again, the desire in itself is not bad. The desire uh, becomes bad when it becomes our idol, when it takes control of our life, where that's the thing that's directing us. And in the passage that we're looking at today, we're looking at John the Baptist. And I think as we look at his life, I can think we can learn a lot about what it means to bring glory to God and how to break out of this pattern of desiring credit, or, or as A.W. Uh, Tozer says, the love of self. And in this passage, we see three things about John the Baptist that are significant. The first thing we see about John the Baptist is we see that he knows who he is not. The text tells us that when the priests and the Levites come to him, it says that he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He doesn't want anyone to mistake who he is. It's emphatic in the text. He said, no, I am not the Christ. I am not the one who was to come. And he wants to make that crystal clear. And the question I have for us to consider is when people see our lives, do they see us pointing to the Savior, or do they see us pretending to be the Savior? Do they see us pointing to the Savior or pretending to be the Savior? See, I think that religious people, church people, all of us here, I think that sometimes what we can do is we can have this tendency to believe in grace at the beginning of our Christian life, and then as we maybe make some progress in our life, we attribute that to our own efforts rather than to God's grace. Maybe we've been a Christian for a long time, and then maybe we start to look down on those who maybe are not as far along as we are. 
We start to feel this spiritual pride because of where we've gotten to. We start to pretend almost like we're the Messiah. See, growth in the Christian life is different than growth in any other area of life. So let's say you have a young girl who's taking piano lessons. She goes to the teacher, and the teacher starts off by teaching her the notes, teaches her about the bass and the treble clef, teaches her how to determine and read, determine the individual notes and read music, and then how they correspond to the keys on the keyboard. Maybe she even has uh, these uh, stickers that show where the notes and how they correspond to the music. Then the teacher prescribes her lessons to work on. Maybe some exercises to strengthen her fingers. Starts to teach her different songs. Then she starts to get the hang of it and she'll start to practice these songs. And then the teacher maybe points out areas where she kind of made a mistake. Maybe one spot she moves a little bit too fast. Maybe one spot she moves a little bit too slow. Maybe she hits the keys a little bit too hard or too soft at one point. And so the teacher directs her and shows her where she's gone wrong. But then if she pr- keeps practicing and practicing and practicing, eventually gets, she might get to a point where she's even better than the teacher. She doesn't need lessons anymore. Not only does she, is she better than the teacher, maybe she gets to a point where she doesn't need music anymore. Maybe she could just play the piano by, by ear. Maybe she can even write her own music. And, and that's kind of growth. And that's how we understand growth and how it should be. You go from being dependent to being independent. At the beginning, you need music. You need a teacher. You need the teacher to show you where you've gone, gone wrong. And then when you become proficient, you become independent. The Christian life is the complete opposite of that. The Christian life is movement from independence to dependence. We start off independent, trying to do life our own way. But as we move and grow in our relationship to God, we don't come more independent, we become more dependent. And so the most godly person you could ever meet is not an independent person who has it all together, it's a person who every moment relies upon God. So John knows who he is not. He knows he's not the Savior. He's not trying to be the Savior. He'll always take a step back, take second place to the Messiah, and we need to do the same thing. No matter how far we are on our spiritual journey, we need to realize that we always need to live in a dependence upon God. So who, he knew who he was not. He also knew who he was. After denying that he was the Christ, these religious leaders asked him, So, are you Elijah? John the Baptist says, No. Are you the prophet? No. Probably getting fed up, they say, Well, who are you then? And he describes himself as a voice crying out in the wilderness. Now what's interesting about this, that he calls himself a voice uh, crying out in the wilderness, is that he was a prophet, and actually later in Matthew chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus refers to him as the Elijah who was to come. Now of course he wasn't a reincarnation of Elijah, but he was a picture of the second Elijah who prepared the way for the Messiah. And so that's how Jesus saw him, but himself, John, he saw himself as just a voice crying out in the wilderness. And he says something very remarkable in verse 27. They ask him how, if he's, if he's not this great person, if he doesn't have this great title, how can you be baptizing people? And John the Baptist says this in verse 27, I baptize you with water, 
But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. See, in that day and age, it was taught that uh, people who were disciples, they were to serve their master. But they were to, that, that service had a limit, and the limit was they didn't have to wash their master's feet. That was a, a task that was too lowly for a disciple. It was the job of a slave. And John the Baptist here says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. That's how great he views Jesus to be. He says, I'm not even worthy to be Jesus' slave. Forget about being his disciple. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. He knows who he is. He's not trying to be the Messiah. He knows he's not worthy to be Jesus' disciple. And yet he believes in grace. I think the same thing is true for us who are believers in Jesus. We're not worthy to be Jesus' disciples. We're not even worthy to be his servants. And this is countercultural because in our culture, we're told, you deserve it. You've earned it. Believe in yourself. Several years ago, I went to a Christian conference, and one of the speakers claimed basically that your heart is a good thing, and God has written these good things on your heart, and you just have to unlock the goodness in your soul. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that all of us are sinners. That's something that's repugnant to the modern mind. We might say, well, we're all made mistakes. We're all, you know, have our faults. But to say that we're all sinners, that's something our culture doesn't accept. But we're all sinners. We're all broken according to the scriptures. Our, the scriptures and experience tell us this. Romans 6.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 1 John 1.8 says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're all sinners. There's not good people and bad people in the world. There's bad people and there's saved people. There's bad people and there's redeemed people. All of us are sinners before God. But we like to break, up, break ourselves up into different categories. And oftentimes the people that we describe as sinners are people who maybe disagree with us or maybe who do sin, commit sins that maybe we're not uncomfortable with. But we're all broken. We're all in need of grace. But we're also all loved. We're all loved by our Heavenly Father. And so we must remember who we are, that we are sinners, but this shouldn't lead us to despair. For those of us who are believers in Jesus, he's accepted us into his family. We always need to be reminded that we're in need of grace. A man named Dr. John Duncan, uh, he was a teacher of Hebrew in Edinburgh many, many years ago. And one day he went to church and was sitting there and they were having communion. And for whatever reason, he just felt like he was unworthy to receive the elements that day. And so he let the elements pass by, and he was just sitting there miserable, wallowing in his sin and who he was. And then he saw a young girl who did the same thing. But as the elements passed her by, she started weeping, weeping uncontrollably. And as he saw this young girl who had allowed the elements to pass by, he was reminded of something. Reminded of something he had forgotten. And that was that salvation was by grace. 
So he went over to the young girl and he said, Take it, Lassie. Take it. It's meant for sinners. And he himself partook of the elements. He had believed in the grace of God at the beginning of his Christian life, but somewhere along the line, he felt he had it all together. He felt like it was based upon his performance. And in that moment, he was reminded that all of us are in need of grace. That all of us need to uh, rely on Jesus' grace. So we need to be reminded of who we are, who we're not, and also that we need grace. Final thing that John does in this chapter is he does what he's called to do. Jesus, or John calls him as, describes himself as the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, we don't have mountains very much here, uh, but if you think about the Adirondacks or someplace like West Virginia where there's a lot of mountains, imagine trying to land a plane in the middle of the mountains. And assuming there's no valley, there's just mountains, what would you do to land a plane in the mountains? Well, you'd have to clear a pathway. You'd have to maybe uh, bring some TNT and, and, and drill holes through, through the mountains so that there was a straight path for the plane to land. And I think that image is kind of what Isaiah and what John is talking about. His goal is to prepare the way, almost like preparing the runway for the Savior. And so he tells the people that he encounters, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prepare yourselves for the Messiah to come. And he does that. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he, de he declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he declares again and again, This man is much greater than I am. He is the Messiah. I am just the one who points to him. And what's remarkable is John's calling is in essence our calling. John's calling was to point to the Messiah. And our calling is the same thing, to point to the cross and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who is our peace. He is our hope. He is the one our souls long for. So that's his calling, and he does that. He fulfills that calling. Yet from a worldly perspective, John's story is kind of tragic. Some scholars suggest that his wilderness ministry was only about six months long. And even if those scholars are wrong, at most it was a few years. Six months of ministry. I mean, imagine if your whole life was kind of boiled down to just six months, that that was the only time that mattered. After this, John had, John had called out uh, King Herod. King Herod was having an affair with his brother Philip's wife. And uh, John spoke against him, and that enraged Herod, and especially uh, the lady he was having an affair with. And so they arrested John. While he was in prison, he probably dealt with depression. We know for sure that he dealt with a lot of doubt. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 to 3. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one to his, who is to come, or shall we look for another? Then after this, sometime after this, John was beheaded. His body was desecrated, something in the ancient world that was considered to be very bad. His head was put on a platter and brought to 
Philip's wife, Herod's, the lady she was having, he was having an affair with. And then we look at his life, and in some sense, you might say his life was a failure. I mean, he's preparing the way for the Lord, calling out people to repent, and you know, especially when he was calling out the Pharisees, they didn't listen. Herod didn't listen. And you see throughout Jesus' ministry that these spiritual leaders, they're not listening. And you look at his ministry and you could say, well, he failed. He didn't do what he was called to do. He had a lot of disciples, but most of them weren't ready when the Messiah came. They didn't believe, they didn't repent, and his ministry was, wasn't effective. But what did Jesus think about John's ministry? Matthew chapter 11, verses 10 to 11 says this. Speaking of John, Jesus says this, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And when Jesus is saying this, I believe that he's saying that John was one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Now, you know, you see the contrast here. Uh, where uh, he's talking about, Jesus is talking about uh, the kingdom of God coming and after his ministry that, you know, they had the Holy Spirit and so the, the ministry of the disciples could be more effective. But what he essentially says is John was an exemplary disciple. John did what he was called to do and Jesus considers John to be great. And I think this teaches us something very important. And I think it teaches us that if God sees what we do, and we know that God sees what we do, then we don't need other people to see what we do. If we know that God sees what we do, we don't need other people to see what we do. See, John wasn't interested in people's applause. John was willing to go to Herod and speak hard, difficult truths. He was willing to call out the spiritual leaders of the day, the people who were thought to have authority, who were thought to have all the answers, he was willing to call them out. He was willing to live in the wilderness, to eat locusts and honey, to live a lifestyle that his, his contemporaries would have probably thought was a little bit crazy. And yet he fulfilled the calling God had for him, and Jesus judged him successful and great. God doesn't judge success as we judge success. See, we could have all of the world applauding us as we're leading people to destruction and going to destruction ourselves. It's not about what man thinks, it's about what God thinks of us. In his book, Immeasurable, Sky Jethany writes this. He says, compare two leaders. Leader A lifted an entire nation in a time of despair. He mobilized his people against unimaginable odds with a clear vision and inspiring passion. He launched a movement that has impacted literally everyone alive today. He set in motion in an industrial and scientific revolution that produced the first computer, the first jet airplane, began human exploration of space, and unlocked the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the modern world has in one way or another been influenced by this man. By the time he died at the age of only 56, everyone on the planet knew his name. Without a doubt, Leader A changed the world. Then there's Leader B. D Leader B lived during the same era. In fact, he, just, he died just 21 days before the leader, 
before leader A. But his life was very different. At the height of his influence, leader B ran a school with just 100 students. He wrote a few books but was not widely regarded. He was beloved by his friends and family and had a reputation for being both intelligent and faithful. But at the time of his death, almost no one knew his name. Most considered his life's work unfulfilled, including Leader B himself. Jeff and I said, so given the choice, which leader's strategy would you rather study? Which leadership conference would you rather attend? The one featuring a keynote address by Leader A, or the one with the small workshop in a back hall led by Leader B? If you're inspired by the world-changing effectiveness of Leader A, congratulations, you've chosen Adolf Hitler. Leader B was Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was executed by the Nazis for his relentless opposition to Hitler. God doesn't judge success as we judge success. He sees what we do not see. We don't have to worry about getting credit or getting recognition for what we do because Jesus sees what we do. Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, Jesus says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your hand know what your right hand is doing, so that giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 6 of that same chapter, Jesus says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verses 17 to 18, Jesus says, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We don't need to be dependent upon man's praise. Of course, it's a nice thing to have. But as believers in Jesus, we get our satisfaction, we get our recognition from God. And anything else is an overflow. It's not the source. It's not what directs our lives. And how much more can we accomplish for the kingdom of God when we're not concerned primarily about man's praise? When we're not concerned about receiving the recognition or the credit? There's a man by the name of uh, Joe Rochefort, and after the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, he started trying to decipher the coding of the Japanese military signals. And he was able to... uh, he, to successfully decode the signals, and he predicted that the Japanese forces would attack Midway on June 3, 1942. It turned out he was exactly right. And because of that, the United States forces were prepared for the attack that was to come. And they delivered the Japanese Navy its first defeat in 350 years. Four carriers were lost, one cruiser was lost by the Japanese troops, 2,500 men, 322 aircraft, and their best pilots. This set in motion the events that eventually led to Japan losing the war. But surprisingly, Rochefort never received any recognition for what he did. In fact, there were some military intelligence officers in Washington who took credit for what he did. But it turned out they had actually predicted the wrong day. And uh, the wreckers were actually sealed for for 40 years, and in his lifetime, he never received any notoriety or any recognition for what he did. In fact, he actually received a demotion from the intelligence community and was assigned to a floating dry dock in San Francisco. But later, in their book, uh, Deceit at Pearl Harbor, Lieutenant Commander Ken Landis 
Staff Sergeant Rex uh, Gunn and Major Sergeant Robert Andre told about a note that Rochefort kept on his desk. That note said this, we can accomplish anything providing no one cares who gets the credit. The authors concluded that was the attitude that won the Battle of Midway. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about who gets the credit. It's about pointing people to Jesus, giving him all the praise and the glory, knowing that he sees what we do. He sees our efforts, and he will reward us for our faithfulness to him. If you know that God sees what you do, you don't need other people to see what you do. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you love us even though we're sinners. That you loved us so much that you came to the earth to die on the cross for us so that we might have life in you. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to have it all together. We don't have to have all the answers to every question that we don't have to have everything all figured out, but that we can look to you for your grace and your mercy. That we could point people to you because you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, as we live our lives, as we serve those around us, I pray that we wouldn't be driven by a desire for praise, but we'd be driven by a desire to please you to show our gratitude and appreciation for all that you are to us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.